Welcome back to the Padang Sessions. In this episode, co-curators of the Namjoon Pig exhibition Rudolf Freeling of SF MoMA and Suk Kyung Lee of the Tate Modern briefly trace Pig's legacy by focusing on some of his key works. They also address multiple intersecting narratives of music and performance, collaboration and artistic networks, as well as transnational interests and trajectories. I will kick off our lecture by just saying it's been a pleasure to work with Su Kyung Lee on this for many, many years now. And uh, and we have we've had a sort of um, curatorial impulse, I would say, a professional urgency and curiosity to review and maybe reposition Nam Jun Pek as an artist who we think is relevant to our contemporary world, but we still need to understand and find out why that is the case today, and if that is in fact the case. So we wanted to include, but also go beyond the well-known path of Nam Jun Pek as a video pioneer and focus our attention at his identity, on his identity as a collaborator and performer in a global perspective. Sue will address the theme of transnationalism, which also means being aware of a very specific local context and the way that these contexts supported Paik, but also provoked him, made him stand out. And I'm going to start by talking about a moment about post-war Germany in the late 50s and 1960s. It was a place where he did not fit in easily. It was a very fraught place full of trauma and tensions, but also full of energy to play catch up with modernity. This was before the, war, uh, before the wall was built in 1963, when the Allied forces had divided up Germany and began to modernize the country based on their ideologies. These two um, images were important for me to get, get an intro into Paik. Um, Baker, who was extremely well-read, very conscious of the various Western and Eastern, Eastern his, histories of philosophy and music. But he began to perform Paik in Germany as a poor Korean, as a Korean who had emigrated to Japan because of the Korean War, had studied in Japan, but then moved to Germany in 1956 to study classical Western music but where he, after a few years, had changed course and began to perform the role of a charismatic Asian disruptor of classical music traditions. So this one image on the left illustrates the beginning of his career. It's a letter from a letter in the early 60s, and um, it shows him as a sort of self-conscious but slightly mocking agent provocateur closely associated with the Fluxus movement, but then he revolutionized the notion of performing music. Here, a dramatic photo on the right from his performance in Karlheinz Stockhausen's Originale in 1961 in Cologne, Germany, in which he used actions with water, shampoo, beans thrown into the audience very much to, to the protests of the public. But also he used very simple and silent gestures. He never played a single musical note, and yet it was his way of performing within a musical performance of Stockhausen's electronic new music 
titled Contacto or Contacts. And um, the next picture is kind of like a blueprint for a lot of his steps or adventures in his career, throughout his career, I would almost say. It's an unrealized score from 1961, um, um, and it's called Symphony for 20 Rooms. It's a key work, um, which immediately makes you wonder why is it called 20 Rooms when there are only 16 squares? A riddle that we could not solve. Uh, but what you do realize immediately is just the sheer density of his thinking, his proposal. You read um, rooms that incorporate live music, an orchestra of bad musicians, live animals like a hen, pre-recorded music and speeches on tape, live radio, record players, and a mix of everything, including a vast range of musical traditions that are typically never in the same room together or in the same performance. And most importantly, he early on emphasized the notion of audience participation. In fact, he declared as the next step towards indeterminacy, a term he loaned from Cage, I wanted the audience to act and play by itself. So I have resigned the performance of music, I exposed the music. And here you see a detail from the score and a, um, and a picture of a sculpture he did two years later. So is there a time and space where we could value bad music or a bad orchestra? Maybe if we walked through the orchestra and could hear differences of each individual player, each individual instrument. Something, by the way, that Janet Cardiff picked up 40 years later. Actively participating in his works required an open-minded audience that would also engage by listening intently to silences, sound bites, and the sound of beans thrown into the audience as it, it were Johann Sebastian Bach's St. Matthew's Passion. Peck's approach to space was not to construct his own ideal room as an empty space, but rather to infiltrate if not outright invade whatever room was available, but to do it in a way that nobody had done before. So he didn't need the concert hall, he didn't need the white cube, but he also completely rethought the tools for making music and what constitutes an instrument and what can be considered a musical performance. In his manifesto from 1963 called Post Music, he asked, why is it music? And his answer is, because it is not not music. So why only play one record at a time when you can mix them constantly with this brand new tool called Record Shish Kebab, which you see on the right here. Um, in some ways, um, the next show that he did, or actually the first show that he did in 1963, um, addressed some of these key concepts early on. And, um, and this is one example of many. I'm focusing on this one as this is also one of the key works in the retrospective. <clears throat> so he used prepared pianos like John Cage, but he let the audience play. He used pre-recorded audio tape, 
but he let the human hand replace the motor of the machine moving along the audio head of the tape player, as you can see here in random access. On the left, the historical photograph from 1963, and on the right, um, a more recent picture um, from an exhibition copy of the Guggenheim Museum. This was first installed in the basement of a villa, which accommodated his very first expo exposition of music and electronic television in 1963 in Wuppertal, Germany. But what is shown in the retrospective is what I just called an exhibition copy, which also illustrates a central strategy in Paik's work. And that is concepts realized in the same spirit with the same ideas, but not repeating the exact same configuration ever. The source material can be the same. In this case, it's audio tape with the sounds of sinus waves, drums and cymbals, noise and silences, but always reproduced in a form of a maze or an urban chaotic grid within reach of the visitor who decides to play this instrument. Again, is it music? It is not not music. The work signals the important shift from a classical music instrument such as violin or piano to the playback system becoming an instrument. And Paik as a predecessor of DJs or artists like Christian Merkley and the whole contemporary history of sampling and music. The invite to this exhibition, <clears throat> to this exhibition called Exposition of Music Electronic Television is also a mixing of languages, very much a mirroring the mixing of music that led Peg to use German, English, French, printed on a Korean daily paper as a background on various changing parts of that Korean daily paper. An entire room in the retrospective <clears throat> is also dedicated to his most important collaborators, Charlotte Mormon, with whom he invented a whole series of hybrid performances with monitors, cameras, and cello. And that notion of taking music out of the concert hall, retooling its components, inviting the audience to participate, that led him to a series of other proposals outside of music, but always in memory of, or in homage of, or even in the spirit of music. So let me change gear now and offer a second beginning to the retrospective by talking about the emergence of video as a medium, as opposed to the interventions into his amazing TV sculptures and hardware manipulations. What we're looking at is a work called Hand and Face from 1961, uh, a black and white film transferred to digital video, a silent film, and it was part of Karl-Heinz Stockhausen's Originale. It was performed for a film camera, obviously before video cameras were available to artists or consumers. The film is as simple as possible, extremely short with an almost banal action. The covering of his face with his hand and the slow reveal of his face. It was shot in 1961 as a material for a possible inclusion of a projected image in the theatrical performance in Cologne. And it's the first document of Paik showing an interest in the moving image. Opposite of simple, one of his most dramatic um, actions with a violence slowly raised above his head and then with a sudden and shocking release of destruction. 
the the next time we see him producing something that we could call a, a moving image, a film, or in this case now, a video image, is in 1965. It is called Button Happening, and once again, it's a very, very simple action. It's the first preserved videotape that exists of Pake, and it looks like an archaeology video, badly preserved even, but all components are artistically composed. The beginning of video was analog. It was an open reel, but it was also the aesthetic of a poor image. Nothing compared to film. The electronic nature of turning on a television set, seeking a channel, was bracketed by moments of instability and interference, a weak signal. Not unlike, by the way, today's changing condition of Wi-Fi reception. But we should note here that it's an image recorded that is not only compromised if we were to compare it to film, but that is deliberately and immediately distorted. Here you see a second set of stills from that video. In other words, Peck was not interested in representation of reality, but in the energy and dynamic of electrons constituting an image, its process, its glitches, the slow, unstable constitution of an electronic signal. He seems to ask, why would you want me to watch me button up my jacket? In other words, that is not interesting. The action is not interesting. The gesture of buttoning and unbuttoning is in itself a relation to the unstable condition of an electronic image between a rendering of a reality in front of a camera and the absence of an indexical relationship as expressed in the absence of a camera input and the expressivity of pure white noise. In Peck's world, these two sides of the spectrum cannot be separated neatly. He is never in search of the perfect image quality. In fact, almost the opposite. And here's another great Peck quote on that note. When too perfect, Lieber got böse. Dear God is angry. The energy of an electronic image lies in its performativity, including its imperfection. Is it beautiful? Well, it is not not beautiful. In other contexts today, artists speak of the troubling the image, of questioning its very foundation and status. We could also call it a medium-specific aesthetic and the beginning of video art. From this point on, Peck produced dozens of ever more complex videotapes, initially recorded still by 60 millimeter film cameras off the television monitor, mostly operated by his collaborator, Judd Jacot. But as soon as he had some cash, he would then invest it into recording and editing equipment, building his own electronic studio. But parallel to that, he grabbed every opportunity to exploit the technologically advanced infrastructure of proper television studios whenever invited and to address the broadcasting system. Video and participation is a third topic in my mind. Participation of the public, that is. With equipment for the recording and broadcasting images eventually becoming widely available, Peg recognized that every consumer could be a potential producer and go live, helping television and video technologies to become more democratic tools for cultural output. He was promoting a more human-centered use of technology in the networks, but also outside of them. 
one key question he had was, how could the public take ownership of television? What forms of participation might be possible and how could that relate in new ways to his vision of a musical total work of art or in his words, a total electronic opera? Electronic opera number one from 1969 was in fact Peck's contribution to one of the first television uh, programs on video art called The Medium is the Medium. It was broadcast by WGBH in Boston, um, who had commissioned six artists, including Peck, to create original works for a special artist transmission. And in an ironic twist on the idea of interactive television, Peck presented a form of what he called participation TV, where he instructs viewers to open or close their eyes while displaying his creative views of the video synthesizer developed with the Japanese engineer Shuya Abe. This was but a first attempt to break open the one-way communication system, a minimal one for sure, more symbolic than anything else. But then we look now at video commune pictured here, Beatles from beginning to end a year later. Again, with WGBH, and he used the funds he received from the television broadcasting company to build an analog video synthesizer with Shuya Abe. And um, Video Commune re-edited in 1992 to a, an eight, eight and a half minute uh, record of a, an originally four hour live program. Uh, it was an improvised montage of distorted television imagery accompanied by songs from the Beatles back catalog. Theoretically, if you were following his instructions at home in your living room, on your couch, to then play any record you felt would match the pictures that you were receiving. So he also picked, invited also random passers-by into the studio and let them remix the videos. You see a few of those um, blurry images, layered images, um, very, very fluid, if you will. And uh, the work's current form today in the exhibition is something where you can either listen to a random playback, playset, or um, in the case of As of MoMA, we decided to offer a, an online version of Video Commune so you could play your own video um, with a Beatles soundtrack of your own choosing back at home or on the go, so to speak. Um, from that moment onward, Peg used an um, ever more complex tool set of video manipulation. Here you see another example from a few years later, Merce by Merce by Peg, um, almost a decade later, and we see a much more sophisticated electronic editing program and aesthetic and approach, collaging, layering, distorting, remixing images on and on. Rarely does he leave an image alone, sitting there to be studied or interpreted. Nothing is fixed or stable in his world. Here we see two stills from um, a studio production uh, mixed with some bit of cinema verite documentation. And it's an homage to dancer and choreographer Mars Cunningham, but also to avant-garde artist Marcel Duchamp. Part one realized in collaboration with Charles Atlas, 
part two in collaboration with his partner and wife, Shigeko Kubota. Around the same time that Peik revolutionized the production of video art tapes, he also revolutionized the use of space and video. So TV Garden is possibly one of the most intriguing, seductive notions of Peik using space to display video. You see about 40 monitors displayed in a lush tropical garden of live plants. You watch John Cage as pictured here, or Charlotte Mormon, or Allen Ginsberg, or many other collaborators and snippets from performances all over the world. He exposed television in space, so to speak, and he did that radically. It's a total environment of one single tape displayed 40 or more than 40 times, depending on the available space. So in his video, this is possibly what one could call the first uh, music tape, video, video clip, kind of spearheading what later became known as MTV style aesthetics. But it is also the idea that more is more. He expands in space one single image and lets it manipulate you, massage you with its atmosphere and its ubiquitousness. It helps the public to embrace the idea of electronic imagery that becomes part of our world, part of the furniture, part of our bodies, part of the spaces we walk through. He let, in Marshall McLuhan's terms, use, he let the media massage us. And this brings me to arguably his most impressive and certainly the largest part of the retrospective, the finale, if you will. It's called Sistine Chapel from 1993. And when Sue and I discussed the checklist and, and what might be a contribution of this retrospective to the scholarship around Paik and through to the many catalogs that uh, had been produced in the past, we thought we should produce something that nobody or almost nobody had seen before outside of Venice. And that was this one work to reconstruct the Sistine Chapel, which at the time seemed site-specific to Venice. It was commissioned for the German pavilion in which Namjoon Peik was invited alongside the German artist Hans Hake to represent Germany in 1993. A bold move, but also a bold move on behalf of Peik to use that scale and that quantity and number of video projectors to inhabit an entire space that he called Sistine Chapel. Obviously, the reconstruction was done in close collaboration with. Um, John Hoffman, Peck's assistant at the time and now curator of the estate, looking at every side of the original location, looking at the ceiling, looking at the four different video sources and reconstituting the same effect to occupy space, to throw literally video all over the place, not as a realistic simulation in an architectural mapping, but rather as an excess of blurry and distorted imagery interfering with each other. 
a visual language that refuses to be locked in to any notion of true representation. Another quote by Paik, the freedom must have more than two ways, directions, vectors, and possibilities of time. So the Paik effect has often been described as electronic wallpaper. I would rather call it, with Paik himself, an electronic gestalt, where not the reading of details and the consumption of, of realistic representation is the viewer's challenge, but rather a call for an openness to let a holistic audiovisual experience happen. Again, in McLuhan's terms, a massaging of relationships and impressions, where John Cage and Joseph Boyce are mass media stars next to Laurie Anderson, David Bowie, Janis Joplin, or Lou Reed. Here is the same work in a picture by the Tate in 2019. To me, this is a lasting legacy of Peg his way of embracing complexities, ambiguities of an unhinged world of distributing images digitally and live, a live remix that he easily and constantly juxtaposed with his return to the simplicity of a hand-drawn gesture or a flickering candle. And the way that this becomes more obvious is this one image from S of MoMA's installation period, where you see the way that images are overlapping each other and also inhabiting whatever space they are given. The bigger, the better, almost. The ceiling is very marked through skylights here, but also very much embraced by this way of projecting images, not to realistically simulate and map a 360-degree environment, but to distort and inhabit and embody a different attitude towards space. And finally, here is um, the, um, the finished installation or one installation image from S of MoMA. To conclude, I would say, Peck's criticality was grounded in his insistence on participation, collaboration and two-way communication. But he certainly didn't reject the very medium, the technology per se. He simply wanted more, a thousand platforms. You could say he would have been extremely happy about his own YouTube channel, but sadly died in 2006, shortly after the social media revolution started. Thank you, Rudolf. May I next ask Sukyung to continue with her presentation? Sukyung, please. Thank you very much for inviting me to this talk. And um, it, it's a really um, great opportunity to talk about this exhibition that started quite a while ago in London, Tate Modern, but then um, which traveled to the US and then um, now uh, in Asia. I think it's uh, important to note that um, the curatorial collaboration with Rudolf has always hoped that um, exhibition might be represented in different continent, Peg lived and worked. So I'm very pleased that uh, Asia has been included in this world tour. And um, what I can really start um, with is this um, iconic work by Dungeon Peck, um, TV Buddha. TV Buddha was really what um, made me realize um, how important this combination of transnational 
philosophical and um, lived experience has been to Peck's work. He was the uh, the artist who was born in Korea and then lived in Japan, Germany, and the U.S., working across all these different continents uh, with the different collaborators, but never really lost his cultural heritage or his um, understanding of the world through different perspectives. And I think TV Buddha really um, manifests that combination of ideas, but also accumulation of different lived experiences, but also as, as a kind of a reminder to always revisit where uh, the artist might have come from. So uh, Namjoon was uh, born in now South Korea, in Seoul. Um, his family was a, a, a quite an affluent business family who were able to um, move out of uh, Korea during the Korean War in 1950. And since then, he was um, sort of living this um, uh, life as a refugee, but also immigrant. And his um, upbringing in, in Seoul uh, in that uh, time of Japanese colonial ruling is really something that shaped uh, his artistic thinking as well as uh, his, his uh, existence as a person. And um, what we can really sort of um, see in his continuing note-making um, was about in his interest in Chinese uh, historical anecdotes, but also Buddhist um, monks' tales, and also some Taoist um, anecdotes which you hear as a, as a person growing up in East Asia. That experience is um, still continuing in some ways because um, uh, as a person growing, grown up in, in Seoul um, in the 90s, I also share that sort of a, a very basic education uh, I got and didn't even realize uh, how important these things might have been. And it seems that Namjoon Peck was also very much interested in this um, sort of embedded kind of learning and knowledge he uh, acquired as a person grown up in East Asia. And when he actually first met uh, the American composer, the experimental composer, John Cage, in 1958, he was quite surprised to find out that this uh, American composer who, who was experimenting with different ideas from uh, uh, what might have been very conventional classical music, like the, the idea of indeterminacy and also chance, were, uh, was actually um, a, a big sort of a, um, investigator of this uh, idea of Zen. So Zen was kind of Buddhist idea, uh, a part of the Buddhism that was sort of beginning to get some kind of attention in the U.S. by these uh, sort of cultural innovators and also these different thinkers such as John Cage. And um, when, when Nam Jun Peck was sort of trying to fit in to this experimental uh, music world in West Germany by the time, he wasn't really considering his cultural heritage as, as something that would be worth considering or rethinking. But by meeting John Cage in the late 50s, he realized that actually he did have something that might be really quite an alternative way of understanding the world, but also 
the sort of artistic medium, but uh, the ways that um, the artist could experiment with. So this um, performance of Zen for Head is one of those things he, he, he performed in West Germany and also uh, in, in other parts of Germany, um, and Europe and later in the US. But um, the idea of Zen in this particular work can be understood in many different ways, but uh, also sort of in relation to the artistic medium of calligraphy and the horizontality of the paper, but also this one stroke making the whole uh, work um, really relate to what the East Asian calligraphic practice might be. But he's um, combining it with very um, um, avant-garde and experimental way of um, performing these things as, as uh, one of the sort of fluxus-related artists at the time. And in his first solo exhibition in 63, the uh, exposition of music and experimental television, he also used this idea of Zen in many different works, but also with his um, sort of exploration of uh, experimental music and also uh, early sort of performance practices, which were understood in, under the term of happening or action music. So um, like you see here at Tate Modern, um, this sort of uh, collection of different works that were shown or included in that um, exhibition in 63, really looked at a lot of different sides of this idea of Zen. As you can see from left is Zen for TV. And in the sort of enlarged photograph, you can see Zen for walk, which actually has a violin at the end of this string. And in electronic sort of medium like TV, but also in uh, the sort of practice of performance and on the right uh, in sort of ready-made installation of uh, objects, he uses this idea of Zen to inquire very different aspects of um, this uh, relationship between being and non-being, but also how ideas like chance and different ways of determining reality and different sides of uh, uh, existence could coexist. And going back to TV Buddha, um, this is a quite a simple work um, in terms of the medium and the, the way it is installed. There is a ready-made Buddha statue from a sort of antique shop, and there is a camera, CCTV camera, that feeds that image of the Buddha into the, uh, the monitor, TV monitor in front of it. So this cyclical nature of um, CCTV camera system is used to represent or sort of relate to the idea of cyclical time in Buddhist sort of thinking, but also um, looking back the sort of the sense of um, self-reflection in this uh, Zen Buddhist type of meditation practice and looking at sort of a humorous side about such a profound idea being linked to that type of um, sort of vanity of self-representation as well. So um, I think it's, this work has many different aspects you could read into and also have um, 
different um, ways of interpreting according to your, your own interest and your own uh, context. Uh, Nixon um, is a very interesting work in its political uh, content. It shows um, the images of uh, former US President Richard Nixon, who was um, in this scandal called Watergate and famously being expelled from his position as the US president by lying and sort of manipulating uh, the, the facts. And this work has, uh, again, quite simple um, ways of representing this idea of distorting, distorting truth or um, questioning the authenticity of what's being shown on TVs and using magnetic coils as the very physical uh, interfering uh, apparatus to distort the images on these um, CRT TVs. Hake is showing uh, sometimes distorted, sometimes uh, straight images of Nixon's public speeches. So what we now call as fake news and these sort of um, different versions of truth uh, is, is quite an interesting and satirical take on these um, images of TV, images of broadcasting, um, and how we may, as a public, to understand what's been um, represented to us as truth and authentic uh, stories, and how we might actually have to question these things as simply as like distorted images by a magnetic field. And magnet was really something he used um, as a physical uh, interfering um, objects uh, as early as in 1965. And in this uh, very famous work using Magnet, magnet TV, um, the, the physical nature of Magnet actually distorting the, the images through CRT tube um, was almost like sculptural experimentation. But what he has done since then was really to look at the manipulation of these images as a, as a way of representing some ideas. And as seen in Nixon, uh, this sort of physical sculptural exper experimentation could also be linked to something that is more inherently um, doubtful about broadcasters' mes messages. And another work that has kind of political undertone uh, is Guadalcanal Requiem. So I'm um, just uh, singling out these two works um, as something quite explicitly political and which have some messages uh, behind these uh, video experimentations that are actually looking at what was happening at the time um, in, in the political dimension of Hague's life. Uh, the next suite of works I would like to talk about um, are Peg's uh, satellite projects from the 80s. So in 1984, on the first day of January, he broadcasted on the satellite uh, in different places uh, on the globe, 
namely um, New York, Paris, and Seoul, uh, to show this work titled Good Morning, Mr. Well. So the title of the work uh, reflects very well-known novel by George Orwell, 1984, that is a tale of dystopian future, which um, has uh, a quite dark sort of uh, expectation of uh, the technologies of surveillance and mass um, communication. But uh, on that day uh, of 84, the first day of 1984, uh, Nam Jun Pek was kind of saying, hey, this isn't too bad. This hasn't turned out that bad. But um, that optimistic view of uh, that year uh, perhaps was the way how Nam Jun Pek was trying to understand the world, but also trying to influence the world he was living in uh, through his uh, work. Because um, this uh, very interesting uh, and also very revolutionary take on satellite uh, broadcasting was really about transnational and also transcultural combination of different aspects of traditional, but also contemporary and very high art and avant-garde and mass entertainment like pop culture and very much about West, but also East, and different kind of take on the culture on a more planetary level. So he was seeing the world certainly as one planet, one world, and one global village. And um, as mentioned earlier, this video commune was the first broadcasting work he made using uh, fully of Fake Abe video synthesizer he made the year before. And this kind of uh, really long take on um, video editing and also playback of what's been available um, as mass entertainment, but also mixing them with highly experimental uh, artistic practice of his uh, friends and collaborators. That was really a unique take uh, and unique visual language Nam Jun Pek established through this video, uh, especially these uh, broadcasting projects. And in 1977, he also experimented with satellite as, as a way of uh, communicating with different places at the same time uh, in Documenta 6 satellite telecast, which was a collaboration with Charlotte Moorman and Joseph Boyce and uh, Dave, uh, Douglas Davis. So in 1986, he made the second satellite project called Bye Bye Kipling. This was more about direct um, response to these questions or questioning of um, the binary between the West and East. And uh, he was obviously referring to uh, Rudyard Kipling's remark on this impossibility of uh, meeting of the two different worlds that are East and West and saying actually that that can be done uh, in this sort of more culturally uh, focused way of communication. And this was at, on the occasion of uh, 
Korea's sort of Asian game, um, the, which is a sport sort of festival, obviously. And he was also trying to make uh, this very uh, uh, widely uh, loved sort of sports festival as a way of uh, injecting more uh, perceived um, sort of difficult or um, hard to understand type of experimental art. And in 1988, his uh, last and third satellite project uh, titled Rep Around the World was um, presented. And this was again a very much conscious mixture of uh, different types of creativity. And it does actually have uh, aliens and all this sort of uh, mock interviews between the Earth presenter, TV anchor, and uh, the alien coming down to this world and looking at the creativity on the planetary level and how that may be perceived as one uh, type of creative product by human beings rather than culturally divided or very much differentiated. So this um, really culminated that era uh, of 1988 um, and, and also that um, decade of 1980s for him and as you may remember that was also the beginning of the end of cold war era and that was particularly pertinent for namjoon peck who obviously suffered these legacies of cold war and military tensions around that time and he was very hopeful that perhaps the world will actually see the sort of um, more harmonious and more peaceful era that may be coming after this decade. The last work I would like to talk about is one candle, uh, also known as Candle TV. It's actually um, quite simple work um, in the old emptied out TV casing. There is a candle which is lit. So it flickers um, as someone passes by or just com coming in to look at. But also it shows this um, very interesting um, process of looking at technology as already a ruin in the making. And as a, as a sort of a person who have been, has been looking at technology as a really interesting artistic medium, it's interesting to see um, he has also looked at the technology as a very much an empty shell or almost like a non-existent thing, but still referring to TV as, as a way of understanding that type of technological advancement within human civilization. What I like about this work is about this precarious nature of all beings and existence. And um, just by simply putting these two things together, he's um, able to really uh, start quite a profound um, questioning about what might be the being, what might be the nothingness, what could be the sort of creative energy, but also um, kind of the demise of human civilization based on technology. So maybe it's just too much to, to read into it, but I think that that ability for this work to open up these um, questions to us and, and also in this very fast 
um, sort of an environment of different technological advancements. I think um, it is interesting to to sort of say um, he was already thinking about these sort of questions which may come uh, after a certain time. And when you sort of see them together with other sort of um, drawings of TV Buddha, for instance, and more reflective and meditative works uh, in his drawings, I think that also shows very um, clear uh, meditative qualities of his practice, which aren't really that much known, but I think also very much present in this exhibition. I would also like to say this uh, juxtaposition was really the way he um, presented certain um, ideas as as contrast, but also uh, as a way of understanding them as a whole thing. The whole entity becoming sort of that conflict within uh, the presence of these things were very important. And again, I'm I'm looking at this TV garden as um, one way of looking at uh, this sort of conflict within the nature and technology, but becoming one environment, we as human race are all in together. And obviously this candle idea was later uh, manifested in a larger installation form as well, um, in this candle projection. And Again, the live candle has that sort of a very precarious um, flickering in this work. And just uh, by looking at that tiny little thing, uh, we just um, kind of bring these questions uh, up to the sort of surface, just um, thinking about what is the one I'm seeing, but also what, what was it that the artist wanted to talk about through it's very simple um, installations and positioning of uh, everyday object. So, yeah, I think um, in this exhibition, you will also see many different things and you will be able to perhaps um, make up your own interpretation of these different things. You have been listening to the Padang Sessions from National Gallery Singapore. Follow us for updates and new episodes every month. And to learn more about our programs, visit nationalgallery.sg. Our podcast team is Erica Lai, Kalisha Chia-Kasim and Ashley Lim. The music you heard is composed by Javon Chandra. I'm Joyce Chung. Thanks for listening. <laughs>